Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Sarah Shanley Hope to the show. Sarah Shanley Hope is the VP of Brand and Partnerships at the Solutions Project, following seven years as the organization's first executive director. Under Sarah's leadership, the organization transformed its mission and culture to center racial and gender equity, launched the field's first and only award-winning intermediary climate and equity fund, and grew a celebratory, collaborative, and inclusive movement for 100% clean energy. Sarah has held executive or leadership roles at the Alliance for Climate Education, Green for All, Cargill, and Best Buy over her 15 years of experience in brand strategy and social change. She has raised and helped deploy more than $50 million in support of racial equity and climate solutions agenda over her tenure in the field. Sarah, how are you doing today? Hi, Raj. Thank you so much for having me. I've got the sun on my face here in Oakland, California, and my kids are happy, so I'm doing well today. Thank you. (laughs) And how old are your kids? I've got two daughters, 11 and 5. And so I have three. They're 8, 10, and 12. How are you handling the COVID pandemic slash homeschooling schooling situation? Hmm. Handling it is a day-to-day question, as I'm sure you experience yourselves. Um, on on our end, for our family, you know, the upside has been we're together. You know, I'm 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 accustomed to traveling pretty frequently for my job at the Solutions Project, and um, this year I have not, and so that has been an upside. Um, the the homeschooling particularly with a kindergartner, uh, is challenging. I've been super grateful. And after the, the, I think, shock of the first two weeks, really impressed by Oakland Unified School District, our public school here, um, for how they've supported kindergartners on Zoom. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I think we're all really, really looking forward to, um, yeah, hopefully, um, a vaccine and and getting um, some real lessons out of out of 2020, so that our public health and and public infrastructure is better prepared in the future. You know, so a couple of things. First of all, you mentioned day to day, and the way I felt and kind of shared with my peers is that I really enjoy being around my family, and fortunately for me, they enjoy being around me too. So that's worked out really well. And the second part is the thing you just said there regarding, you know, some lessons. Mm. I feel like many people that I speak to want to go back to some sense of where we were before from a, you know, let's get back to normal, let's move back to default. But I think that there are those among us that are looking for the lessons 
in what can we take away from here and perhaps the changes we can make, whether it's in our personal lives, professional lives, et cetera. You mentioned the travel part and, you know, do things a little bit differently going forward. Oh, yes, Raj. I mean, I think that is key. Um, it, this is not a moment to return to normal. This is a, um, yeah, a, a real invitation for like honest and deep resetting, um, not just for our families and for ourselves, um, but really for, yeah, our economy, for our democracy, um, and for the culture that we want to create, the future that we can create together. I think for us personally, like my family, and also for the Solutions Project, you know, the biggest lessons learned and the greatest sources of inspiration this year in 2020 have been, um, yeah, just the power of showing up for each other. Um, you know, the, the, uh, rapid speed with which, um, you know, mutual aid programs popped up, um, among the solutions project grantee partners in, in, kind of the the COVID hotspots across across the country, um, thinking about our own family and, you know, making um, these commitments and figuring out kind of these pods, these relationships and, um, uh, yeah, kind of our own version of mutual aid with, with two other families um, that we're very close with here in Oakland to figure out how to make this work in a way that, um, yeah, that supported each other, that protected, uh, our health and well-being, um, and, you know, was really committed to, um, the health in our community, um, and, you know, frontline workers in our grocery stores, you know, all the way to, to healthcare workers, making sure that we were doing our part, um, by showing up for each other. I agree. Now, before we get to the solutions project, I like to open the show by asking, if you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? Something interesting about myself. I mean, what I appreciate about this question that's like coming top of mind to me is I just this last week made the choice to rewrite a story that I have about myself that that I uh, am a terrible cook that I don't like to cook. That is the old story <laughs> I was telling my family and myself. And, um, and so, uh, you know, I think just this, this past week, I'm like, you know what? I do like to cook, you know, and I'm not bad at it. I I'm good at it. So that's something interesting. I think, um, in this time, you know, love in the time of COVID is having that space to slow down and, and to, I don't know if teach a dog new tricks is quite the right, the white, the right phrase, but, um, but yeah, something interesting about me is that I am absolutely, uh, open to change even in, even in my (laughs) forties and I like to cook. It turns out. You are speaking my language. I think personal narrative is very important. Um, you know, since you were so nice to share, I'll just tell you one of mine for this next decade. I've I've told myself, I've written the story, I'm writing the story for myself. I've I've convinced myself 
that this decade will be the most important decade of my life. Mm. And again, going back to my daughters, because they're 8, 10, and 12, and at the end of this decade, and this might resonate with you. So last year, December 31st, I sat down and I mapped out what it looks like till December 31st, 2029. And the first thing I did was write my first, my oldest daughter's name, and I wrote next to her name, 21. And I just stopped for a moment just to breathe. Now, you with your two daughters, you'll be in the same exact position that I'll be in 10 years from now. And so the question I asked myself after I wrote that down in subsequent daughters' names, I said, okay, this is your decade to create as many meaningful moments with your girls as you can and want to. So the story I've told myself is this is the most important decade of my life. Mm. I love that. Thank you for sharing. Absolutely. And I appreciate you sharing too. So you mentioned the Solutions Project. Can you give the audience an overview of the Solutions Project and your role at the organization? Yes. So the Solutions Project is a U.S. national nonprofit organization that is really focused on supporting, as our name suggests, bold, practical climate solutions. Um, But for our focus, it's, it's different than a lot of other, you know, environmental organizations. It's focused on those solutions created by those leaders and organizations closest to the problem. So thinking about environmental justice communities and um, Black, Indigenous, other people of color, particularly women of color, leading on climate solutions for decades, if not generations, the Solutions Project really sees uh, their innovations and their wisdom as the path for all of us to create the future that we want. So we started the organization and we have a grassroots grant-making program We do media and storytelling to try to amplify the stories of success in places, you know, as different as Buffalo, New York or Des Moines, Iowa, or where I live now in Oakland, California, bring those stories to the fore. And by doing so, really change the imagination of what's possible. We focus first on 100% clean energy and are now with the success around 100% clean energy, really expanding to community climate solutions in food and land management and water systems. Now, you mentioned bold, practical climate solutions. Can you give me an example of a few of those? Yes, I absolutely can. So, you know, we just um, worked with two of our partners, again, really different places, Push Buffalo in Buffalo, New York, And then um, the Miami Climate Alliance, obviously in Miami, to work on a story for TED around affordable housing as a climate solution. So, you know, again, in in each of these two places, and this is true in in many other um, cities and towns across the country, the need for affordable housing is growing. Um, You know, there's there's a high level of gentrification and displacement. Um, both because of climate impacts, um, but also because which which disproportionately affect um, lower income communities, communities of color, but also because of the unintended negative consequences of green development that doesn't have an equity focus. So if a neighborhood, you know, starts to develop solar on their housing, oftentimes, 
those people, those families that are living in that neighborhood, the rents are increased to a point where they're not uh, able to stay. They're displaced because of um, the improvements made in their neighborhood. And so Push Buffalo, Miami Climate Alliance are two examples of organizations that are really at the forefront of innovating in explicitly affordable housing and developing a strategy that really integrates solar energy efficiency, you know, geothermal in in the Northeast. So thinking about, um, you know, innovative uh, climate solutions and heating and cooling um, to to really solve those kinds of of basic human needs uh, challenges that so many communities face. You know, speaking directly to affordable housing, I heard another term recently that I really like a lot. And the gentleman that was speaking about it was saying that the term affordable housing often carries some negative baggage, if you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, the term he used was attainable housing. Mm. And, I, and I, for some reason, that really resonated with me. And he was actually speaking to you know something similar to what you're talking about in the fact that making it attainable and also making sure, ensuring that uh, energy efficiency is part of this conversation because the energy burden that you know people that are from a lower social economic uh, rung have to carry is much greater than others. Absolutely, and that's something. This this focus on. Um, yeah, on the energy burden is something that another one of our partners in Atlanta, Partnership for Southern Equity, has done a significant amount of work around. And it's it's everything from, you know, looking at the maps of, um, you know, towns and communities that were established by uh, people who were formerly enslaved, so African-Americans generationally um, in the South, mapping those communities, historic disinvestment, you know, we, we did not have reparations in this country or any kind of, of robust reconstruction um, to account for, you know, extracted free labor uh, in our economy um, in the United States. And so mapping that um, experience across the South with the highest cost of dirty energy in the country mapped with the health impacts, so the cancers, the asthmas, um, all of the the negative repercussions of dirty energy. And, And then you just see the burden is not just your utility bill. It's also your health costs. It's also your job prospects. Um, and so taking an approach that looks at the whole system and, um, yeah, what is not just housing that's attainable, but uh, a life that is, um, you know, attends to that historic disinvestment and instead um, invests in the well-being and and the thriving of all communities in our in our country is is very much um, what the Solutions Project is supporting through our partnerships all across the country. And I think that's the other thing I would just share in terms of of why we see the boldest, most effective, and frankly, most efficient um, solutions to the climate crisis really um, beginning being created, um, you know, in those most impacted communities 
at the source of, of so many of these problems is, you know, when your life is on the line, when those that you love and the place that you love is under that, that daily threat, you can, you can be sure, um, that everyone is working, um, to solve those problems and to solve them in ways that are, um, you know, not one-offs or silos, not not the whack-a-mole that I think a lot of environmental um, ad- advocates who are who are not that proximate to the problems, you know, they're they're not seeing the breadth of connections, the the interconnections in in solutions that are required. You know, so that as you're developing solar for um, multifamily housing or, um, you know, in, in electric vehicle program that you're looking at, yeah, what, what will this mean for rents? What will this mean for transit? What will this mean for, um, our waterways and, and, and water, uh, access as well? It sounds like what you're saying is, you know, stop taking a perhaps siloed approach and take a more holistic connected approach to all these activities. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And if you're not yet clear on how these um, problems connect to each other and therefore the solutions, then, then really it's about listening and learning and thinking through how you can bring your support behind those leaders, those organizations, those entrepreneurs who who you know have the lived experience of of always connecting these issues because it's a part of of their day to day and and community uh, reality. I think twenty twenty really brought that to the fore, where a lot of our partners, um, you know, who are who are mostly uh, rooted at the neighborhood block by block level in black, indigenous, immigrant, other communities of color, you know, they were working on climate solutions um, in this intersectional way, housing, um, job creation, health, and then COVID comes along and their communities are the most at risk for, again, these same reasons, disinvested historically, um, systemic racism in our healthcare systems, all, all of these things that make um, response to a global pandemic particularly challenging in in communities of color. And so our partners were then having to connect, okay, yes, climate solutions, um, but now how do climate solutions interconnect with COVID prevention and, and again, mutual aid solutions? Then again, fast forward a few months and, um, you know, our whole country witnesses the murder of George Floyd following so many other um, lives lost to, um, to police brutality. And again, our partners who are rooted at that neighborhood level in Black communities across the country are then responding to um, racial injustice and, and revolutionary uprisings in their own communities. And so adding to their programming, what does a community safety program look like that um, protects uh, our community um, 
you know, in, including um, from, you know, police or state sanctioned violence. So I think it goes back to earlier in our conversation when we were speaking about the pandemic and hoping that things, you know, don't go back to quote unquote normal. Yes. COVID to some extent helped expose some of these underlying issues, these cracks, if you will, in society as a whole. And as to your point, has brought them to the forefront. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And brought them to the forefront in ways that, um, you know, you can imagine um, the crisis response um, and trauma response, um, you know, those skills that that our partners on the ground had to develop in real time, you know, our tools and um, skills that are are now going to be built in in a proactive way going forward. You know, you one of one of the the activities this year, um, and frankly, the last four years that my older daughter and I uh, have really um, done together is is reading um, post apocalyptic teen literature. So we've gotten very, very into, you know, of course the Harry Potter series started us off four years ago. Um, hunger, the hunger Games series, his dark materials series, Akata witch, Akata warrior. Um, I, she's not quite old enough to, to join me in, um, Octavia Butler's parable of the parable series, but, uh, but all this to say, you know, these are skills that were developing out of crisis. Um, and again, for the Solutions Project, we're learning. We're, we're not, thankfully, I am not as proximate to the threat and to the crises of 2020 that so many of the leaders and organizations that we support are. And wow, does 2020 put more and more and more and more of us into that experience of of surviving through crisis and transmuting that pain into power frankly um for creating the future that we want that is transformative that does not look backwards but really says okay when when the economy shuts down at the scale and for the length of time that it does because of a global pandemic, what are the new things that we can build, um, the new ways of, of leading and parenting and um, working uh, that will absolutely serve us much better for the future where, you know, climate crises and, and so much more are, are only going to increase Absolutely. Earlier, you mentioned you help amplify the voice of your partners. Can you explain how the Solutions Project does that? Yes. So while I am the founding executive director of the Solutions Project, I'm realizing I didn't share my my new role is uh, as VP of brand and partnerships. So so part of my role now is is very much on the the storytelling and um, media platforms that we're able to to co-create with our grantee partners. And this is a part of the partnership that our new CEO, Gloria Walton, who was on our board for the last three years, uh, led one of our partner grantee organizations, one of the first grantees that we formed a partnership with, um, you know, 
five, six years ago, that she and I are now uh, really growing our strategy and our programming um, around uh, a phrase that is, I think, increasing in um, awareness in our sector, but but certainly not a popular term of a regenerative economy. So the stories that are possible there to tell, you know, are are those like, um, you know, again, parable of of the talents, you know, Octavia Butler's story, um, where you know, yes, there is this total breakdown in society. And then what is possible to create from that? And so those heroes journeys, those um, examples of, you know, Phoenix rising from the ashes, all of those kinds of metaphors um, are playing out, uh, you know, in frontline communities, in environmental justice communities, where again, we're seeing those bold practical climate solutions um, not just uh, in idea form, but actually being implemented all over the place. So I can give an example um, of of just one of these kinds of stories. So Hurricane Maria hit the island of Puerto Rico, and um, you know, so many um, climate fueled, you know, climate crisis fueled uh, natural disasters in Puerto Rico have occurred even since, um, since Hurricane Maria. But at that time, I'm sure you can still recall because it was so devastating and occupied the national news media for, for a few months, electricity was out. So, so that infrastructure uh totally collapsed for months, 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 in some places, you know, more than a year, two years. And water systems, food systems, communication systems. Um, and so one of our partners, and I think this is important to, to show how the Solutions Project approaches our work, we started with relationships we already had. So Uprose, which is a part of the... Um, Puerto Rican community in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, still with strong diasporic ties to the island. We, we, we went there first and said, how do we, you know, really bring some support to, to those on the island, worked with an organization in Puerto Rico. Um, um, and through that relationship, learned about an organization who's still our partner called La Maraña. And they were a community that really came together out of Hurricane Maria to not just provide immediate support, you know, similar to COVID mutual aid, like that immediate support, food, you know, we we delivered, you know, portable solar systems with, with goal zero, you know, great, uh, great example of uh, a technology company, you know, really, really partnering with us to, to support, um, you know, success and work on the ground. And, and the community leaders that came together to not only provide that mutual aid and, and immediate response began to, you know, again, see what could be born from this disaster that moves us not back to the status quo of what was, but really that transformation that sometimes is only possible through total breakdown. 
And so the stories out of La Maraña and Puerto Rico, they're actually, you know, nearing completion on a documentary that'll be released early in 2021 to show some of this were, you know, communities that came together to form kind of land trusts in two key regions of the island. And then community members actually participated. So these are not engineers. These are not, you know, nonprofit leaders. These are neighbors and neighbors coming together through a design process to say, what do we want to build here that will better prepare us for the next hurricane, that'll better um, serve our interests across health, across the economy, across basic access to housing and clean water and renewable energy, affordable energy. And so that's what they've been developing you know, these, these three years since is those ground up models that are again, community designed, community determined, and, and um, really setting an example of, yeah, what's possible uh, for, for all of us to consider as, as, you know, we, we think about 2021, 2022, you know, when we, when we get through the kind of worst of, of the COVID impacts and, and need to rebuild our economy, how do we transform forward instead of building back? Sounds like a really great initiative. Staying with the theme of transformation moves us to the crux of our conversation, the why behind what you mm-hmm. do. You know, according to your LinkedIn bio, which you can't always trust everything you read on the internet, but <laughs> right around 2009 when you joined Green for All. So you've been in this movement for about 11 years now, if my math is correct. Mm. What's your why? What's your driving force? What motivates you? To, well, what motivated you to get involved and keep going? Mm. Yes. Yeah, so I've been in the climate movement for 11 years. Um, a little longer than that because of my time at the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, which really birthed Green for All, um, you know, uh, shortly after. And I went to business school actually in between. So, you know, maybe it's been a total of 14 years that I've been in the climate movement. And, you know, even sharing that part of my story of of, of learning about the climate movement through the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, my why is very much around human rights and and justice and this deep, 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 not just commitment, but belief in, um, yeah, the world that's possible when people come together across, you know, systemic racial divides, class divides, you know, gender norms, and and really, we are able to bring all of our unique gifts together to, um, yeah, to to make a future in which everyone has the the ability to thrive. Um, that's that's really what what drives me. Um, my children, of course, it's 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 no coincidence that uh, my older daughter is is eleven years old. Um, but really, this commitment, these values um, were born in Buffalo, New York, where I'm originally from and where I grew up. My parents moved to Buffalo, um, you know, prior to, to me being born and didn't have extended family there. And so we really um, formed 
those bonds with our neighbors and, um, you know, and, and Buffalo is, is now in large part because of the, the leadership of community and community organizations like Push Buffalo, who the Solutions Project is a core partner of. Now the city is, is starting to, you know, um, grow again economically. But when I was growing up there, yeah, there was nobody outside the city that was coming to save us. You know, it was very much neighbors coming together. And again, it's a, it's a very segregated city. And I, the neighborhood that I grew up in, um, was, was very racially integrated. And so, um, I, I was able to experience that possibility. Um, I went to, um, a public magnet school, which, which, um, not many schools, if any, at this stage, um, are aligned to, um, a magnet policy, but, but at the time that I was, that I was going to school, um, a magnet school was really prioritizing racial and, and gender and class representation in a city so that a, a great school, you know, I went to an honor school, um, that everyone in this city, no matter your racial or, or, um, or class background, your neighborhood could, could attend that school. And so, so I was able to experience for myself what, um, what creativity and innovation and relationship and community could be born from that kind of um, value system being put into practice and that has guided my um, my career path, my my purpose in life ever since. That's a beautiful story. I appreciate you sharing that. What are some of the most valuable lessons you said fourteen years or so that you've learned about yourself on your journey? Mm. Um, let's see if I can boil them down. You know, I think one important lesson that I am. Um, actively learning right now, but, but I'm also hoping to like share those, those learnings with others so that others can kind of join me in it is that leadership uh, and even executive leadership can really be found in so many roles. So I, um, with the board of directors at the solutions project made a, a strategic decision two years ago to transition out of the executive director role. And a lot of that was because, you know, I've got two kids. I, I was like very um, conscient, conscious of the, the never ending role of an executive director and my capacity to fill it in this decade, this decade that is, is mission critical for my kids as, as we were discussing and, um, or for my role as a parent. Um, and then it was also because I recognized that the gifts that I brought to the organization were not best served in the ED role, in the executive director role, and that we needed to bring in additional skills, um, new skills for that position to lead us forward in this next phase of growth. And thankfully, you know, I didn't... Um, need to leave the organization that I loved, I've been able to transition into a different role, but to manage that process with really, really deep intention and understanding of power, of um, 
you know, unconscious bias and uh, the need, I think, for most of us who make it into executive roles to control. We have an overdeveloped sense of responsibility, all of us that are in executive roles. And so really attending to those um, growth edges in my leadership as a part of this next evolution in, in, yeah, in, in what I could offer to not just the solutions project, but to, um, our movement, our climate movement and to, as a, as a role model for my daughters that yes, you, you know, women, um, should absolutely pursue that boss lady role and that it is not linear, you know, that leadership can, can shift and shape, um, you know, to truly align to, to that form following function and being honest and courageous in functions shifting over time based on you as an individual, based on your organization and based on, um, yeah, the, the, the moments, um, that are calling, for you to do something different or for the organization to have someone different in that role. And, and so maybe I'll just stop there because that's there's a lot packed into that lesson learned. But I do think um, the like infinite forms of leadership in the climate movement has been one of the greatest um, lessons that I'm still learning, but that I have learned in these in these 14 years. Beautiful lesson. You mentioned Solutions Project again. Magic Wand 2030. Mm. What does the future hold for the Solutions Project? What is your ideal vision? I am so excited for this question because Gloria and I have been dreaming with just that scale. When she came in to the organization um, as a board member three years ago, you know, she she shared her experience as a grantee and said, the solutions project, you know, is ready for the big time. Like, yes, you're, you're an early stage organization testing all these different models. And, um, we've got something really special here to bring to scale. And so thankfully under her leadership, you know, starting in 2021, we will be, um, close to a $15 million a year organization, which is no small feat. And, um, and our vision for thinking about 2030 is bringing that um, scale to transformation in our outcomes. We know that uh, today, even with um, this doubling of climate philanthropy on equity that the Bezos Earth Fund grants recently achieved, a total of $151 million for equity-focused work, over the next three years, the Solutions Project not only you know is a beneficiary of that um, of that scale of philanthropic investment in our organization, but but Gloria's education of the Bezos Earth Fund team really created that scale of commitment: one hundred and fifty-one million dollars over the next three years to five equity organizations, and even with that scaled commitment, it doubles the current climate philanthropy focused on equity every year. And before this this month this last month it was 60 million and now it's 120 million each year. 
Um, even with that, it's less than 1% of climate philanthropy that supports an equity-centered approach to climate solutions. And so for the solutions project, you know, these next 10 years, 9, 10 years, is again bringing um, bringing that number up dramatically so that those bold practical solutions that we've been supporting you know, more than a hundred grantees since we started all across the country at the neighborhood level, connecting those place-based innovations with city, state, and now hopefully federal policy that we're able to see in the next 10 years, a total um, shift in the center of gravity away from a top-down, you know, technology-only CO2 singular metric to to really inverse our dominant approach to solving the climate crisis, that this is happening at the community level, ground up, that this is about integrating technology with generational and cultural wisdom born from Black, Indigenous, immigrant, other communities of color who have, who have not broken their bond with with the land or with mother earth that, that those solutions are um, yeah, are really setting the standard for everyone, you know, whether you're in business or whether you're um, in government or, or, you know, a, a more dominant environmental organization that you're really seeing that this is where change happens at the block by block level by those communities who are, who are experiencing the problems and the interconnected problems so that those solutions, those intersectional interconnected solutions are, are the norm. Well, I, for one, look forward to seeing your grand vision come to fruition. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. So Sarah, last question. And earlier when you were kind of giving your lesson learned, you did pack some advice in there, but specific question is, if you could share some advice or words of wisdom, it can be personal or professional with the audience, what would it be? Oh, I think the biggest advice that I would have is increase your comfort with being uncomfortable, with not having certainty or control, but, but showing up anyway and listening and learning in real time. Um, I think that the more... Um, you know, the more each of us can lean in to the transformations that are underway, whether whether we like them or not, um, the better. So, yes, uh, lean in to discomfort, let go of control, be okay with uncertainty. I love the idea of being okay with uncertainty. Have you heard of VUCA, volatile, uncertain, yes. cha- yes. chaotic, and ambiguous? That is the mantra. That is the framework. So be able to navigate VUCA. I love that. Sarah, I really enjoyed speaking with you. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we go? I think that's it. I just invite um, anyone who's listening that that feels excited and inspired to bring their gifts uh, to this this grand vision um, to visit us at the solutions or to follow us on social media at 100 is now. 
and I will put links to your site and the social media handles in the show notes. Sarah, thank, thank you, you again so much for your time, and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you so much, Raj. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.